Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This is a dangerous time for LGBTQ people, and children across the country are paying the price. On this installment, we're going to be talking with Christina Wilson-Rimlin, lead counsel at Children's Rights, about anti-LGBTQ legislation that targets queer youth in out-of-home care. The legislation attempts to give service providers a license to discriminate against foster parents and others who don't meet a religious litmus test. These policies place the agency's beliefs above the needs and best interests of the children who are in care. They also discriminate against LGBTQ parents who are trying to provide a loving home. After that, we'll be speaking with our own legal director, Brett Figlewski, about our amazing LGBTQ youth legal clinic and the services that we provide to a very much at need population here in New York. Hi, Christina. It's so nice for you to join us today. I'm really excited about this conversation that we're getting ready to have. I'm happy to be having this conversation with you. Um, So before we start, um, we know that there are LGBTQ kids in the child welfare system that are in desperate need of loving families and loving LGBTQ parents interested in providing safe and supportive homes. And yet, for some reason, they are the targets of anti-LGBT legislation that's causing unnecessary and severe harm. And before we talk about some of those efforts, can you give us a little bit of a background about some of the realities that LGBTQ youth face in the child welfare system? Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm I'm happy to have a chance to talk about this population because I think that they all too often are invisible in our national our national discourse. So I think it's really important to have a chance to discuss them and the particular vulnerabilities that they experience in child welfare systems. So we know there's approximately 400 to 500,000 children across the country in our nation's foster care systems, and whereas only five to seven percent of youth are LGBTQ in the normal population, the LGBTQ youth in foster care are uh, disproportionately overrepresented. Some studies have found them to be almost 25% of those in foster care. And from our experience working across the country, it's clear that a lot of those young people do come into foster care because they experience um, rejection in their families of origin in, in ways that are associated with their orientations or identities. And so you have a population of young people who some of them have been rejected at home, come into a foster care system, and unfortunately, many of our foster care systems across the country are are largely incompetent to meet their needs and do not have comprehensive LGBTQ-affirming policies and non-discrimination provisions in place, are not training early and often on the basis of those policy provisions and non-discrimination protections, and therefore um, interface with those young people in a way that exposes them to elevated risk of discrimination and rejection, and it kind of exacerbates um, what I think is a vulnerability for a lot of kids in foster care, which is you act out in a foster family home, so you're ejected from it. You find yourself in an institutional setting 
where you get worse and you're exposed to more psychotropic meds and, and um, staph abuse and things kind of spiral and get worse from there. Um, so I think that what we have done in terms of our investigation into these issues have really come to the conclusion that of all the bad things that are happening to kids in foster care, LGBTQ youth are consistently experiencing the worst of the worst when it comes to um, discrimination and that um, kind of over-institutionalization and then experiencing really poor outcomes as a result of that. Um, there was a study in New York City that found that, you know, 80% of the homeless LGBTQ youth that they interviewed had run away from or had been evicted from a foster family home um, where they were discriminated against. And so that kind of gives you a, a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Wow. And um, what about in terms of, you know, part of the conversation also involves same-sex parents, LGBT parents. Um, what are some of the challenges that they face from adoption agencies and from the foster care system in attempting to provide loving homes to youth? I think it's a really good question. So we've seen that LGBTQ youth end up in institutionalized settings more than in foster family settings, uh, which cuts them off from a very meaningful, important avenue to building a relationship that could lead to a permanent loving family. Um, I think the, the uh, an important component of it is that all of these systems across the country are struggling to have enough safe and loving homes for all of the children in the system. And at the same time, all of these systems, uh, very many of them are very um, uh, sort of reactive rather than proactive with respect to recruiting LGBTQ loving families. Um, and so you really end up with a situation where a lot of the LGBTQ youth in the system get kind of labeled as bad kids end up put in institutions rather than loving homes at the same time that the very institution, the very system itself is failing to recruit from the LGBTQ community, which is frankly shocking and so impractical because we know that the LGBTQ community is a very obvious, um, amazing target for foster and adoptive parents. There's some 2 million LGBTQ couples across the country that have expressed an interest in adoption, for example. And so it's this amazingly uh, voluminous and, and powerful, incredible potential resource for young people that's just really not being tapped into. Okay, so we know that you've discussed some of the problems um, and challenges that LGBTQ youth face and LGBT parents, and instead of doing everything that we possibly can collectively to improve things, it seems like legislators are doing everything they can to make things worse for folks. Can you talk a little bit about the federal uh, bill, this Adderholt Amendment, and how does it specifically violate children's rights? How is it so harmful? Sure, absolutely. So the Adderholt Amendment um, was uh, voted into approval in association with the House Appropriations Committee vote on July 11th. Um, I think what's very important to understand about it in the context of the anti um, LGBTQ religious discrimination bills is that this amendment goes farther than any other religious freedom bill that's currently on the books anywhere in the country in that it specifically authorizes child welfare agencies to dis 
discriminate not just against LGBTQ adults, but against the young people that they are intended to serve. Um, it specifically authorizes child welfare service providers to have the power to decline services or to provide services in accordance with their sincerely held religious beliefs or moral convictions. Um, and so reading between the lines and really understanding what that language means in context, it means that if an agency does not want to accept a lesbian young woman into their foster family system, then they can simply say no, and that young woman will be forced to be in institutional care as opposed to being in a family-like setting. Or perhaps even more troublingly, they could say yes and then have that young woman be forced to attend religious services, be forced to pray with the family every day, um, you know, be subjected to an expectation that she, you know, comport with their uh, spiritual growth and development in, in accordance with their religious beliefs and, and really be exposed to messaging from the foster family who's receiving state and federal dollars that, you know, for example, being gay means that she's going to hell. Um, so this amendment really um, specifically empowers what I would describe as state-sponsored or federal government-sponsored discrimination uh, against young people in the name of God, um, which is obviously incredibly problematic and, and disturbing because we know for a fact that exposing young people to that kind of discriminatory religious messaging can have extremely detrimental long-term effects on their self-esteem and their identity. So I understand that a lot of states have... Um, prohibitions on discrimination against children in the child welfare system based on religion. Uh, how would this amendment affect, you know, states that, that try to protect uh, children from laws like this? It's a really important point. I'm really glad you raised it because that's the other way in which uh, this amendment truly goes farther than anything we've seen before. It specifically uh, allows the federal government to financially penalize states that prosecute discrimination that's going on within their individual child welfare systems. So, for example, this, it, let's take the state of South Carolina. There's a provider in operation in South Carolina called Miracle Hill, whose um, mission for being is to recruit Christian foster families. Um, they want all the children that come into their system to be um, served in an environment that's conducive to their spiritual growth. They are expected to worship. Um, they, you know, pray over their families. Um, the state of South Carolina uh, received a complaint against them that had been filed on, on behalf of a Jewish couple that was not allowed to become a foster parent there, and they responded by um, putting Miracle Hill on probation because they were not not providing services in accordance with the state's non-discrimination provision and the state's understanding of the federal grants requirement that they provide those services in a non-discriminatory fashion. Under this amendment, South Carolina could be financially penalized by losing 15% of its federal child welfare dollars for taking that action, for trying to hold a child welfare agency accountable um, to, in complying with the non-discrimination provisions that are in place. 
Um, so it really takes it quite a step further. And when you talk about, you know, withholding 15% of much-needed federal funding for child welfare systems across the country, it's billions of dollars. Um, and so the amendment coming into law would mean that all children in foster care and their families will be harmed by, the, by that lack of funding, and states will be penalized for enforcing their own state non-discrimination provisions or those that are in place under federal regulations. So what is the timeline that we're looking at here? I mean, if folks want to get on the phone and call their senator or call their congressman, what is the what's the what's the advocacy ask and and when do we need to mobilize? It seems like this hasn't really gained the kind of traction that it should in the media. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. How urgent are we talking here? I think that it it's really um we don't have a set timeline in terms of when it's going to um kind of be finalized and so I think it is absolutely a matter of urgency. I think it is something that you um and all your listeners would be encouraged to call your representatives and voice your opposition to the Adderhold amendment. Um it's it's a tremendously dangerous piece of legislation and I think that unfortunately in this day and age in this political environment it's like we're just trying to drink bad news from um you know a fire hose and there's so much of it going on that it can really be a struggle to focus this is something that really merits our focus and so I would encourage everybody to call immediately call early and often and vote and voice your opposition to it you can also get connected with the every child deserves a family campaign um, they have a tremendous website that really is um, taking the lead in terms of opposition to the Outerhold Amendment and also provides a, a great amount of resources um, about the every child deserves a family. Great. And we'll provide a link to that in the uh, page for the podcast. Can you – so this is already happening at the state level. We've seen um, Oklahoma became the first state in 2018 to sign an anti-LGBT piece of legislation into law, and that bill allows taxpayer-funded taxpayer child welfare agencies to also reject foster and adoptive parents based on the agency's religious beliefs. Can you talk a little bit about some of the legislation that we've seen either come through the states, be considered by the states, or uh, actually be enacted that does something similar? Yeah. Unfortunately, there are similar existing laws on the books in Alabama, Kansas, Michigan, Mississippi, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, and Virginia. Um, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of these provisions. It seems to be very much a cohesive nationwide political strategy to get these provisions in place in in state laws across the country. Um, I will say that there is there have been kind of some good news victories as well in places that we have been successful in beating these back. Um, one of those is in the state of Georgia where they have put forth this religious freedom bill. They've done two efforts at it and both have failed. And I think um, the Georgia story is in some ways a very a very optimistic one because one of the reasons why the anti-LGBTQ bill failed in the first place was that the 
um, corporate community, the advocacy community, the LGBTQ community, the child welfare community uh, collectively rose up in opposition to it. And it, from the corporate side, became so clear that it was going to become so very, very costly to the state um, that I think that really had a tremendous impact and inspired Governor Nathan Deal to vow to veto it if it ever came across his desk. And so I think it's a really good example of um, corporations standing up and doing the right thing in response to an absolute outcry from from the community. So what else is being done to stop some of the bills that have already become laws in some of the states that you just described? Is there anything um, from a legal standpoint being done through the court system to challenge some of these bills? Is there anything we can that we're doing as a legal community? Yeah, I think there's definitely, um, you know, from sort of the civil rights litigation perspective, there's a lot of what I would say are investigations and, and pre-litigation work going on, um, trying to find the best place to challenge it, trying to find the right name plaintiffs and representatives and, and the right jurisdiction in which to bring that kind of challenge. So I think there there's a lot of that going on. I know that there's active litigation um, in Texas challenging these. It was brought by Lambda Legal. Um, and so I think... The answer is yes, we are trying to use the court system to fight back against these provisions. Um, when I kind of pull back a lot of what we at Children's Rights, what we do as um, in our litigation is try to hold governments accountable for how they're treating young people. And when you talk about this issue, what tends to happen when you have this religious belief that's kind of steeped in the child welfare service provider is that it trickles down from the head of the provider agency all the way down to the foster parent to to discussions that are happening around the breakfast table. And it ends up conveying to LGBT young people that their identities or their orientations are absolutely uh, either don't exist or are, you know, condemning them to hell for the rest of their lives. And I've had face-to-face conversations with young people who've aged out of these systems having heard that messaging their whole life, and they still believe that maybe because they're gay, they're going to hell. They still believe that as adults, as functional adults, they're still carrying around that trauma. And so from our perspective, it's very much a violation of those young people's substantive due process right under our Constitution to be safe while they're in state custody. And that is um, definitely something that we're interested in prosecuting and and putting forward as as an impact litigation strategy. That's great. I feel like we have this conversation around religious discrimination in this bubble where we're just talking about wedding cakes and and things like that. But, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about a license to discriminate is taxpayer-funded, religiously motivated discrimination, and it manifests in ways that's really targeting the most vulnerable among us. Is that not right? That's right. That's right. And specifically, I mean, I've had I've witnessed this with clients of mine that were um, in communication with. The connection, especially amongst uh, transgender and gender nonconforming young people, the connection between this discriminatory treatment and them having an episode where, where every part of their gender, gender dysmorphia is triggered in the worst way imaginable and it creates um, an absolute risk of self-harm, if not a suicide attempt within, you know, a, 
a day of that initial experience where they're being misgendered and they're being discriminated against. The connection is so strong. It is a clear and present danger. It's not just lifelong um, emotional trauma and scarring. It's an immediate risk of exposing kids to having uh, such a such a mental health crisis that it really can precipitate uh, a suicide attempt or, or other self-harm. And so I think um, we've seen that firsthand. Those stories and, and those moments that I've had with young people, you know, honestly keep me up at night. And we've also seen the flip side of it where that same young person gets placed in an affirming uh, environment and all of a sudden their entire demeanor changes, their entire outlook on life changes because they're not uh, feeling constantly under under attack and threatened, you know, because of who they are and instead they're able to settle into the safety of their environment and, and kind of pick their heads up and start thinking about their future again and start having some dreams and some goals and some ambitions, um, which has been tremendously, tremendously wonderful to see. Um, so I couldn't agree with you more. I think this is really a very important issue. It's a clear and present danger, and it's, it's really affecting young people as they're struggling to come to terms with who they are. Well, thank you for bringing up some of the success stories. Let's definitely pivot for a second to give us all a little bit of a, a, a breather and just um, an appreciation for the work that you do and Lambda Legal and other groups that focus on um, serving this population. What positive impact have you been able to have through either legislation and policy advocacy, through training, in order to make the foster care system more supportive for LGBTQ youth? Well, I mean, I think we have been um, tremendously honored to work in partnership with Lambda Legal on kind of a comprehensive 50-state survey of what protections are in place or are not in place across the country. And so we've published a report. It's called Safe Havens. Um, it has a live interactive map that's hosted at Lambda Legal's website, and you can um, check out what protections and provisions are in place in your state and, and kind of peek around the country and see how other jurisdictions are operating. I think it's a very important tool, and we've been using it as a tool to train attorneys who represent kids, in particular in child welfare procedures and juvenile justice proceedings so that they can be kind of armed and dangerous, empowered uh, with the non-discrimination provisions that are in place, empowered with what protections exist under state law, empowered with the protections that, that exist under our federal constitution as they advocate uh, for young people across the country. So that's been an important piece of the work. And, and in the context of doing that, we really had a chance to kind of survey and highlight um, some providers that are doing amazing work for kids. And I think that that's an important thing to recognize is that even in sometimes the most unexpected places, you find uh, providers who uh, are tremendous passionate advocates for LGBTQ young people in care and who are doing really incredible work. We were able to feature an organization called Chris 180, which is based here in Atlanta, that has been uh, doing amazing work for LGBTQ young people for years and years and is truly a leader in the profession in terms of how to um, you know, meet these young people's needs and affirm them and connect them with the right kind of services and the right kind of housing environment, um, really infuse the LGBTQ um, uh, activism in their hiring process and in their training so that they really um, have staff people who are, who are really committed and really dedicated and they're doing 
excellent work for young people. So it's there are in unexpected places uh, bright shining lights because there are tremendous people across our country who who really care about these issues and are doing the right thing for kids. That's excellent. And I uh, know here in New York we just um, we just passed in New York City a ban on conversion therapy here in the city, and it's being enforced by the Department of Consumer Affairs. Can you, you've already kind of referenced how this bill kind of ties in with, um, you know, forcing religious beliefs on young people. Can you talk about how these two things are kind of connected? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that's important to recognize is that when you have a vacuum, into the vacuum, individuals insert whatever they've got going on, including their biases. And so when child welfare systems across the country do not have an anti, I mean, an anti-discrimination policy in place and LGBTQ affirming policies in place, then it kind of creates a vacuum into which people insert whatever their, whatever their personal, or pseudo-professional beliefs may be about all of these issues. And so we have um, interviewed clients who've told us stories of going to see the, the therapist that they were sent to by their child welfare agency who tells them that being transgender doesn't exist and sends them home with some Bible verses that they're supposed to pray, you know, at night with their mom to make, you know, all that stuff go away. Um, that specific incident precipitated a a mental health crisis in that young person. There was a suicide attempt within a couple of days of that, of receiving that message. So that's kind of how it can play out. It's not that the state necessarily, you know, goes to the marketplace and says, I'm going to buy some conversion therapy for my foster care children. Instead, it's a lot more subtle. It's that the state goes and hires a therapist and doesn't do an LGBTQ training with that therapist. They just they just hire the therapist, and there's not an LGBTQ training in place, and there's not a non-discrimination provision that anybody is educated on, and so the therapist is just sitting in that room with that young person just doing what they think is their job, and then that's the message that they're communicating. And so I think what is particularly helpful about the amazing movement that's happened to really end conversion therapy and advance anti-conversion therapy laws across the country is that it it forces everyone to focus on this and really puts a spotlight on the fact that providing that kind of teaching to young people is tantamount to psychological torture, has a tremendously detrimental effect on them, both in the immediate and the short term. Um, And so right now we're in a position where, thanks to incredible advocacy across the country, there are conversion therapy laws, you know, in in quite a number of states from Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Illinois, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, um, Maryland, D.C. I'm sure I missed some. There's just a whole group of them. That's great. That's that's (laughs) a tremendous smorgasbord um, of places where they've really come out and and said that this should be banned. And I think as a result of that, even in places where it's not banned, people who work in the mental health community have more awareness of it. And I think that 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 can only be a good thing for young people. Wow. It also shows us this conversation, how much all of the issues that we care about are connected from um, caring for children in the child welfare system to religiously motivated discrimination, to conversion therapy, all of these things, to suicide and mental health services. All of these things are connected for our community. Um, And 
I guess I'd want to close with you by asking, you know, we've got a lot of lawyers who are listeners to our podcast. Can you talk a little bit about if there was one thing that you would ask um, us as, you know, just ordinary citizens who are trying to do our best to raise awareness about these issues or take action, what we can do, and then specifically to the legal community, if there's one action that we could all take or something that we could do to make an impact in this area, what would you recommend? It's a really, it's a really great question. Um, I mean, I think one of the most fundamental problems in our society with respect to these issues is that when we think about foster care kids or we think about juvenile justice kids that are in the juvenile justice system or, or kids that are experiencing homelessness, we tend to think about those children and those young people as other other people's kids. Um, and so I would like to challenge everyone to have sort of a philosophical shift and start to think about them as our kids your kids, my kids, that could be, you know, a family member of mine. I mean, that could be me. That could be any of us, but for a few twists of fate. And so if you start to think about the children in our foster care system and our juvenile justice systems and the children who are on the streets as our own kids, uh, what do we do with our voices? How do we amplify their voices and their concerns? Um, so I would encourage everybody to follow Children's Rights on Twitter and Facebook, follow Lambda Legal on Twitter and Facebook. Um, that'll give you an opportunity to just get more information about these populations and have a chance to amplify that and share that within your communities and start discussions with people who, for whom, frankly, these children may be absolutely in their blind spot. They may absolutely be invisible to what's going on uh, with these young people. So that's the first thing. And specifically, with respect to lawyers, um, there are a lot of pro bono opportunities in, in terms of direct service representation that I would encourage you to reach out to your um, local bar. Find a way to represent a young person. Uh, find a way to become a volunteer for a young person as a court-appointed special advocate. Um, get a little bit more proximate to what's going on in these young people's lives because I guarantee you that they will absolutely inspire you and, and change you and you will learn a great deal from them, and they will benefit tremendously from your involvement in their life. Wow. Christina, thank you so much for speaking with me today about this important topic and particularly the really urgent need for folks to get on the phone, call their representatives, and make sure that we do everything we can to stop this discrimination that's getting ready to you know, manifest itself through the federal government. And I, I, I think... I'm just deeply appreciative of our conversation today. I hope it's raised some awareness and highlighted how this issue impacts the most vulnerable population uh, among the LGBT community and what we can do to uh, try to take action. Uh, thank you so much. I've, I've been really honored to have the chance to have this conversation with you and, and share it with your audience. And I am so deeply grateful to you for your interest in these issues. It's, it's tremendously helpful. All right. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. We are back with Brett Figlewski. Brett is the legal director of Legal, and we are thrilled to sit down to talk with him about the LGBTQ youth clinic that we have here and the legal services that we offer 
through the Legal Foundation to queer youth in need. Welcome, Brett. Hi, Eric. Good to be back. Good to have you here. So can you give us a little bit of an idea about how our Legal Youth Clinic came to be? Um, Who are some of our partners? How long have we been serving the needs of queer youth? And and do people even know that we provide these services? Obviously, the youth do because they've been coming. Um, But it's such a remarkable thing that we service that we provide to the community. Can you give us a little bit of its history? Sure. So the youth clinic really is one of the most important services we offer, I think. And it was something that I began in my former job as a staff attorney at Sanctuary for Families. I was working with LGBT victims of domestic violence and sex trafficking, and in general was concerned because there really was little awareness about the ways in which domestic violence and sex trafficking in particular affect members of the LGBT community and the way that youth are most at risk. And so with a number of interns who are some of our stalwart volunteers together, we embarked on a little research project and we wanted to know what services were out there for LGBTQ youth. And there were really only a handful. And we visited, and there was one in particular which was particularly long-standing and seemed to attract many youth on a weekly basis, and it's this program of the Church of St. Luke in the Fields in the West Village, which was and still remains a place where many LGBTQ youth congregate. And so we started going and we were interested in learning more. And we did we did focus groups, I guess you could say, and we talked to youth about their stories and we talked about healthy relationships and we talked about um, police encounters and things of that nature. And we really learned that indeed, um, these youth are very much at risk um, for a whole host of social ills, whether violence generally or sexual assault or sex trafficking. And we also learned that the youth really wanted, um, in many ways, a traditional legal clinic. And so we went from holding these groups, these sort of conversational groups, to having an attorney present um, once a week to meet with anyone who had a legal question. And so now we're about seven years, you know, seven years strong and, you know, hoping to expand our services into the future. What are some of the issues that uh, the youth come uh, with What are some of their most pressing needs? Sure. So I would say that, um, you know, housing instability is a big need. Um, There are lots of youth who come to us who have been in situations of violence, whether violence at the hands of um, a partner or um, very often these youth are at risk for exchanging sex for money and there are um, a whole host of ways in which youth become exploited or um, attacked. And so there were many family law issues, criminal law issues. Um, There's also the reality, as we know, of walking while trans, um, for instance. Um, For many years, too, um, you know, being in possession of condoms, you know, put someone at 
um, at risk for arrest. So, um, Can you unpack those two issues for folks walking while trans and possession of condoms as evidence of sex work? Absolutely. So, um, so in short, um, many, many of the youth um, you know, are stopped by police and some of the ways in which um, you know, an encounter with the police may escalate is if there is possession of a condom, which might be um, used as evidence for um, engaging in prostitution. And so that's been a huge problem. Um, we, of course, want police to be able to prosecute traffickers, but this doesn't um, you know, need to be one of the tools to do that. And it puts uh, our community members at great risk of harm and arrest. And just the reality of... Um, in the past, there was a lot of insensitivity and lack of knowledge on the part of uh, the police force about LGBT individuals generally and trans individuals in particular. And so police encounters often, um, you know, did not display any sort of respect and often escalated. And so an arrest became more likely. And so we we definitely see many, many young people who come to us who have desk appearance tickets or criminal cases preceded and really have no clue about what might um, ensue. And so that's a lot of our advocacy and our efforts to place those youth or refer those youth to legal services organizations, um, which can help them in that regard. So are many of the youth in there in the child welfare system or maybe runaway or homeless youth? You know, so this particular program works with youth ages 16 to 24, but really the vast majority who have come to us with questions are 18 to 24, so they're coming to us as adults and are no longer in the child welfare system. but many may have... Aged um, out. Yes, exactly. And many um, have issues with respect to public benefits and even simple questions, um, where to receive public benefits. And so we really try to help um, you know, give people the tools and information um, as best we can. And I will say that one of the things that we've been able to do is incorporate technology into this clinic as we have with our Tuesday night clinic. And so we're able at the click of a button now to upload information and have it sent um, to the young person as soon as the consultation ends. Um, most of the so time the person has you know, a, a phone to receive that information. If and I that come really with a specific a need, you can... You take notes, you provide whatever service mm-hmm. you can, advice, consultation, and then you can follow up really easily with resources that might help e- me or guide me. Exactly. And where there is an actionable legal issue, um, we are trying to grow our lawyer referral network and pro bono panel such that at the click of a button, we can refer the young person to a lawyer or legal services organization who might be able to take the case. Who are some of the... You know, at Legal, we're very grateful for and dependent on the services of lawyers who are volunteers, who give of their time um, to help serve our community. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the amazing attorneys that you work with 
in and around this youth clinic? Absolutely. So I mentioned that when we started, and I think it was in 2011, um, it was myself with two interns, two summer interns at Sanctuary for Families, and those summer interns have grown up um, but are still (laughs) part of... the, le- the wider legal family. And as I said, they're some of our most stalwart volunteers. Um, one is Lauren Melkis, and the other is Sharon Barbour, who has been at the law firm of Cleary Gottlieb. And she has really um, been able to get the law firm very strongly behind this clinic. And many of her, um, you know, her colleagues and associates at Cleary have also signed up. So we've been very grateful for that partnership. And I think that this clinic has been of particular interest to um, to people who have a soft spot for young people. Um, so many lawyers have preferred to volunteer at this clinic compared to our Tuesday night clinic, which is more traditional and, um, you know, is a different age demographic generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, this happens to be on a Saturday night, and so sometimes it's more convenient for our volunteers. Um, but those who do it, you know, really have formed a pretty tight cadre of volunteers, and they've also have um, on their own uh, organized events, fundraising events, um, uh, holiday events to make gift bags for the youth who attend the clinic. So um, so it's a really strong and growing part of the legal services we try to offer to the community. That's amazing. But in even though they're a nice, tight-knit group of volunteers, yes. they're always looking for new family members. Is that Absolutely. Not new family members, you know, are always welcome. And, um, you know, anyone who is interested or tentatively interested can reach out to me to learn more. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, we also have a Tuesday night clinic. And so sometimes they're are volunteers who like to do both. So mm-hmm. I'd be happy to, um, you know, talk about both of those clinics. And even if you just have um, an interest in giving back and serving this population that is in so need, so much need, um, and is is among the most vulnerable and marginalized uh, members of our community, even if you don't know particularly that much about the area that you think these youth might need. Um, you can learn on the go. Well, yeah. And in addition, um, you know, once again, to sing the praises of um, this new technology, Mm -hmm. um, it allows the lawyers to um, ask questions uh, that are prompted once the the issue area is identified. And so no one is expected to be an expert. Um, it's really to elicit the initial information such that we can provide the basic um, knowledge and or referrals to the young person. So it's basically so, like a how-to for the lawyer to follow. Yeah, and we also now, with this new technology, um, we're uploading segments of a former CLE that we did, and mm-hmm. so um, the volunteer lawyer can watch um, you know, a quick video to learn more. Um, so I think that it's really accessible to lawyers of all stripes, um, even if these particular common practice areas, criminal law, family law, etc., um, are not among the lawyers' day-to-day practice. And how can, if lawyers don't have time or they're 
not lawyers, but just friends, what else can they do to be involved with your work or give back to this community? Um, what's your advice for folks? Well, my advice is, um, you know, to look at all of the legal services we're offering. And another important part, I mentioned it um, in describing what we try to do, is our lawyer referral network and our pro bono panel. So if um, you are a solo practitioner or part of a small or large law firm and your law firm wants to get involved, um, you know, we'd love to have you part of that network. Um, maybe there are appropriate uh, cases that are indeed within your firm's um, area of knowledge and expertise, um, or there are um, cases which might arise which um, are really great pro bono opportunities. And so I think that's a really, um, really important and needed way to get involved. And how do folks learn more about that? So um, you can also contact me directly, um, and I will probably provide you with um, information generally and also a link to learn about our lawyer referral network and our pro bono panel, as well as the clinics and the possibility of volunteering directly at them. And I'll include both of those links on our landing page so people can easily have access to them and find out more. Um, Brett, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Tara. about this important work that we're able to do. And um, thank you for, I mean, you know, thank you for not only the work that you do, but also the, the young interns that you've helped cultivate their education and development. <laughs> I mean, you really do have, we have some of the most dedicated interns here at Legal. We could not do the legal work that we do without not only the volunteers, but the amazing interns who give and then go on to become lawyers in their own right and serving these communities and continuing their relationship. It's true. And, um, and so another way that you or your firm can help is um, if you have um, perhaps paralegals or um, young associates who might like to volunteer time to do legal research and writing. I mean, that's just indispensable um, to our to our work. And um, yes, we do have an ever-growing fleet of interns, <laughs> um, and it, they really are the backbone of what we do. So. And I think it's worth noting that this is in the city, but we have a helpline. Oh yes, of that course. If you're if youth are in areas that are not close to St. Luke's and they mm-hmm. need to access our services, we're here for them through our hotline. Yeah, I mean, very often the helpline is the way that people first reach us and um, you know, we, we call it our helpline, but really that refers to the variety of ways that people reach out to us, whether it's by a phone call or an email or finding us online. And um, very often we might direct the person to come to the clinic, but also um, we'll endeavor to find, you know, services available in that person's area. So um, I do uh, recommend giving out that number as well when you give out the other information. I'd be happy to. Brett, thank you so much for your time Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening. This and future podcasts can be found online at iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us stars if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Follow me at Ed Lesh. 
thanks again. Back soon.